Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Battleground this morning. If you're watching online, you're feeling a little down under the weather. Uh, I think all of us, to some degree, and families, extended family, can relate to that. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you're, whether you're sitting on the couch this morning or in the bed or, or here, turn with me to Revelation 3. And if you're new with us, let me just sort of explain what we've been doing. We've been looking through the seven churches of Asia Minor. So we're well into that, and we come to the church of Sardis, probably one of the most important churches. As probably, probably I say that every week, but, you know, as, as it pertains to the American church. And, uh, and so the Lord has a message for us this morning. As you find your place, let me just remind you something. Just, it's just family business here for a second. Um, our December giving was poor. And I would just remind you that we live by budget just like you do. Uh, please be faithful there. So your pastors don't have to make hard decisions come the first quarter. So just a, just a reminder there, uh, just a little family business. If that's, and uh, So let's stand to our feet. We are the Lord's church. He has purchased us. We belong to him. This church belongs to him. And so let us hear from him this morning. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in my sight, in the sight of God. Remember then, what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour, what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people have, who have not sold their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, as, as we prepare to hear your word over the last couple of days, I've had a dear friend lose their father. I've heard of a friend in school whose husband has leukemia and has just went into hospice. Lord, COVID is still doing its thing and death is all around us. And so today, Lord, we thank you that you have given us the spirit of life that transcends death. How dare we go to sleep? For we have the best news in all the world to those who need it the most. And so God today, encourage your people, wake up your people, no matter where they are, no matter where this sermon finds them, now or in the future. Lord, we trust your word to do the work and trust the Spirit to... Make it happen. Do it in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a contrast going on in here 
in the message as, as oftentimes in Scripture. The spirit of life in a culture of death. How do we navigate that as the church? And what we've been seeing in, the, in these different churches is that the church does not always navigate that well. We also see that the Lord is always in the midst of his church. He walks with us. He is with us. He is in your life, with you, in you, through the Holy Spirit. Notice, remember verse, the first verse of these churches, every letter is a key to what this is about. The most important part is always captured here. Notice that he says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So that's a pulling back, pointing back to Revelation 1, verse 4. This is what he said in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now just listen to Romans 8, 2. just want you to bring in the fullness of the spirit. Remember, there's not seven spirits. There's not seven Holy Spirits. That's a symbolic number that represents fullness. So that's the fullness of the Spirit that is both in believers and is before the very throne of God. Romans 8.2 says it this way, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you have two laws, the law of the Spirit of life and the law of sin and death. He has given us in Christ the spirit of life. Enter in the Sardis church. The Sardis church is the best representation of the American evangelical church that has embraced wholeheartedly and even proudly nominal Christianity. And so this is the context today in the church of Sardis as it is predominantly throughout America in the churches, they are comfortable. There is little suffering, little persecution, little conviction, and, and yet everybody loves Jesus, and Jesus loves everybody. The warning here, the soberness of this church, is there's no people being racked with suffering, nobody being wrenched with heresy. One guy says it this way, they are a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Not lukewarm as Laodicea, but looking very much alive while in fact they are stone dead. And so here's the question. I want you to sort of hear it if you want to write it down or put it on your mind, on the bookshelf of your mind, and just to see what God's Word has to say. Is a nominal Christian an authentic Christian? Is a nominal Christian, we're going to talk about that word a little bit, not, is it really an authentic Christian? According to the Bible. Well, let's think about the little bit of the background of Sardis for a minute. If you, if you notice, if you look on a map, Sardis is about 50 miles northeast of Ephesus. And it's in a mountainous region. So Sardis sort of jutted out over a cliff. They were on a mountain top with sheer cliffs on the side, a fertile valley below them. And they felt themselves impregnable to anybody ever attacking them. They were set up on a hill. They were the city on a hill. 
Sardis had an ancient history. We can trace them back all the way, all the way to Cyrus of Persia. Remember Cyrus who let the people of Israel go back and build the, and build the Jerusalem back. All the way back to there. Matter of fact, it was Cyrus that conquered them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But not only that, they would be conquered by Alexander the Great and Antiochus. But the church was what we would call today progressive. Most likely this was a large church. A wealthy church. By all accounts, by the outside looking in, they were a healthy church. They were busy. They would have been our what we would call social justice warriors. They were, they were progressive people. They were about doing something. They had money. They had talent. They had resources. And all of these things have lulled them to spiritual sleep. In this form of comfortable Christianity. So the context here is critical to understand why Jesus says what he says. You see... Back in the day of Cyrus, Cyrus wanted to conquer Sardis. But like we said, it was, a, it was up on a hill and there were sheer cliffs. How are you going to get up there? How are you going to move your people up there and, do it and, get, and take this city? So he told his soldiers, I'll make anybody wealthy who figures out how to get this done. And so one day a soldier's sitting there and he's just looking up at the, up at the gates, up at the, wall, up at the walls, up on the cliff and saying, Man, how in the world... And there was a soldier up there on the gate. And he dropped his helmet over the wall. You know, and the soldier's down, the, the other soldier's sitting there watching him as his helmet bounced down the cliff. So this soldier came down, went outside the gate, and he, I guess, is shimmy a word? He shimmied down. You know what shimmy is. All of y'all have shimmied somewhere. Shimmied up or shimmied down. He shimmied down this cliff, back and forth and back and forth, till he got to his helmet. And then he went the same way, shimmied up, back and forth and back and forth, climbed up on the wall, went back, and, and the guy down at the bottom of the center going, hmm. And so he, he goes over to the boys. He said, hey, boys, get your sword here and follow me. I got an idea. And so that's what he did. He followed the path, and he shimmied up the same way the other guy did. And when he got up to the top, you know what he found? Nobody was guarding the gate. They thought themselves invincible. Cyrus took the city because they thought nobody could take them. They were healthy. They were wealthy. This is the illustration. This is the reality of the church in America who has sat back fat and comfortable and has fallen asleep while the enemy climbed over the gate unconfronted. It's even the story of our own denomination if we're not being careful. The Lord attends the church in Sardis. And he warns them that their spiritual condition will lead to judgment if they do not repent. This is Jesus rendering both a diagnosis and offering a remedy. It is sort of a pathetic diagnosis here for this church. Look at verse, the end of verse 1 and verse 2. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. In other words, the Sardis church is a spiritual graveyard. But they can't see it. They can't tell it. And nobody else can too by all appearances. From the outside looking in, they look healthy. They look excited. They're busy. They're doing stuff. They're making it happen. But the majority of the church had so compromised into the pagan environment that they lived in, the church was, listen, nominal. You know what the word nominal means? 
in name only. That's what it means to be a nominal Christian. To say I was just a nominal Christian is, is to say I'm a Christian in name only. Get a little bit of a hint of what's going on if you look down to verse 4. There's, there's these comparison that there are some, there are most with soiled garments, but there are a few that have not soiled their garments. You see... Their sin wasn't as blatant as Jezebel last week. They have these secret sins. You know, it's then sins when your wife goes to bed, sins. When you're out of town on business, sins. What you do at school, sins. What you do in your mind where nobody can see, sins. It was those secret sins In other words, their visible Christian life was a facade. They were good at it. We're going to come back to this verse next week. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we'll talk about this again next week. There's not multiple choice. There's no multiple choice there. That's your, your devotion to the Lord is judged by this. And they had completely been secularized in the church. But they had not stopped doing the work. Their deeds, they had plenty of them. Look at verse 2. They were just not complete. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So literally, that words mean it, they weren't fulfilled. It wasn't that they weren't plenteous. They were. It was not that they weren't wonderful in the eyes of man. They were. They were admired. But in the eyes of God, they were deficient. They were corrupted. Do you remember when Samuel was charged with going to anoint a king out of Jesse's family? 1 Samuel 16 tells about that story. And they brought in all the brothers but David. Do you remember? Starting with the firstborn. You know, get the big boy out here. You know, comes in, you know, boy, here he is. Look, big, tall, dark, built. He's a king. He can lead us. <laughs> he could he could whoop everybody by himself. That's what the Lord said to Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not look on his appearance. Or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the honest question we have to ask ourselves this morning is how much of our life is a facade? Just put on the makeup so that we don't scare everybody to death. You see, this is what we call hypocrisy. This was the problem. This spiritual graveyard was hypocrisy. And when you think of hypocrisy, who do you think about in the Bible? The Pharisees, right? First things that pop in your mind, there's, there's a point for that. Jesus had a lot to say. Let me just pick one. Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus is teaching the people what not to do, who not to be like what not to embrace as faith. 
says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And on the street corners, that they may be seen by others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see the difference? Here's what Paul tells Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.3 But understand this, that in the last days, there will be... There will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Do you know what that means? That there's people, that it is possible to have a form of godliness that fools everybody else and be brutal. To have a form of godliness and have a successful blog that everybody looks for and be arrogant and be rude. It is possible to think you're godly and be lo- have lovers of pleasure rather than lover of God. It's, it should scare us to death. That that is possible. And God calls it hypocrisy. A a hypocrite was simply an actor playing a part. And listen, here's the truth today. Let's just be honest. We all struggle with hypocrisy to some degree. We all struggle with consistency. I mean, how many times have we sat in a worship service and Micah's leading and my mind's a thousand miles away? Right, doing something I need to do or I forgot to do, mad about something. I'm taking God's name in vain when I do that. Right? You realize that? We're singing about God, but our minds and our hearts are not fixed on God. We all struggle with that. Do you remember? I know some of you might be too young, but most of you aren't. Most of you got some snow on the roof just like me or no snow at all. You remember the worship wars? Pastors like me created two services because we couldn't get along. Because we were all so selfish, we just wanted it our own way. And so we put the older people in one service and the younger people on the other. Some people worshiped in the gym and some people worshiped in the sanctuary because, you know, we got to worship in pews. It's just not the same. And some people can't worship in pews. We got to have chairs. And some people like to worship with the ripped jeans and some people don't. Do you see this? Whoever considered what's going on in our hearts that drives all of that. Because listen, that's what God looks at. We all struggle with this. 
We all have something to repent of, of our own selfishness. As if Micah is the only one who leads us to worship. Our lives are worship. When we come here on Sunday, we should have been so much in the presence of God through the week that when he strums his guitar, it runs our cup over. That's life. That's what he's looking at. That's what matters. We all struggle here. But listen, this is the point of the text. There is a form of hypocrisy that is damning. It is damning, and it is damning people with their church memberships intact. It is damning because it is a lifestyle, and nobody sees anything wrong with it. The nominal Christian says this. Well, you know, Pastor, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was eight, but I didn't accept Him as Lord till I was about 20. No, no. You were converted at 20. Before that, you were just a lost church member. There's no nominal Christianity. You see, nominal Christianity, look at the text, is a hypocritical Christianity that is a type of death that God does not accept. And listen, His acceptance is the issue, not yours. Your submission is the issue, not your acceptance. It is His acceptance that ultimately is ultimate in this life. Nominal Christianity is a form of spiritual death. And he loves the church enough to say it. John Stott nailed it again. He says this, authenticity is the mark of a true church. Authenticity. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says this, the Lord did. Cause this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And they're, listen, And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their fear of me is a commandment. In other words, it is possible to have some knowledge about God, but inwardly have no desire for God. Do you hear what I said? It is possible to have some knowledge about God, but inwardly have no desire for God. To intellectually understand something you do not desire. And he's saying that is not authentic faith. This is the diagnosis. It is spiritual death. But there is a remedy. That's good news, isn't it? It would be a hard sermon if there wasn't a remedy, right? There's a metaphor going on here, and there's, it's twofold. It is one of spiritual death, and there's also one of sleep. And the metaphor changes, you, you can see in verse 2. Now, you could say this is the same metaphor talking about one group of people. I believe there's two groups of people within the church, and there always is. Those are that... that are regenerate, that are converted, that are born again, and those that are not. And so look, there are six imperatives here, and they're very straightforward. Look at the verse 2 and 3. It says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in my sight. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So there's six imperatives here. The first one is wake up. That word could actually be translated and really is better in context translated, be watchful. It's going off the context, remember? This city had been taken twice. (laughs) Ironically, 
the first time they got taken, about a century later, everybody forgot. Guess what happened? Same thing. The church oftentimes loses, loses its lessons it's learned in the past because we don't know our history, and we repeat it. They, Sardis did. So he tells them, wake up. I thought about this, Rick. I don't know. I bet you hadn't ever done this. I hope you hadn't. I was, Christina was at UNCG, and our work day started at 7, and sometimes I'd go up there and spend some time with her, and I had to drive back on Monday morning, and work day started at 7, and so I'd get up like really early, and, uh, and the sun would be rising, and I was on my bike, and I fell asleep. Now, you're talking about waking you up. That, I don't know what that was. Just said, wake up, you know, you know, you try to. Find the nearest rest stop. I forgot to put my kickstand down. Dropped a bike completely on the ground. Scared me so bad, but I've never done that again. Be watchful. That's what he's saying. Wake up. This is important. Life or death there, you know. If I wouldn't have, if two seconds of more of a sleep on a motorcycle and you're dead. Wake up and strengthen. Look at verse 2. Strengthen what remains. What, what, what is he supposed to strengthen? Our faith. Here's what he's saying. Your body is sick. It's your church body is sick. And you better tend to it lest it dies. And it can die. Imagine this. This is, this is a really true metaphor, by the way. That you have a very highly contagious disease. And you go to a church, and everybody gets sick. You're like, hmm. So you say, bunch of sick people. So you go to another church, everybody gets sick. About four churches in, everybody's sick. What's the problem? You are. We're a body, brothers and sisters. And if one of us gets sick, we all get sick. We're like a family. Like right now, i got a sick youngin' in the house. We built our house for quarantine. Way back for all of this. we got our bedrooms, one bed, bedrooms over here, and bedroom over here, and bathroom spread out. And if we get sick, you go to your room, we'll feed you with a slingshot. Right? We've all, uh-uh, got a big family. You don't, you don't get this thing under control. Everybody gets sick. But you got to deal with it. That's what he's saying. You better wake up. You better deal with it. It ain't going to go away by itself. The Holy Spirit's still there. Listen, the Holy Spirit's still there and He's working, but the time is drawing short. And listen, the Spirit of God will leave a church. You don't get anything out of this study. We better understand that. There's a Spirit indwelling that happens in the believer, but there's a Spirit feeling that happens in your life and in the corporate body of the church. And He will leave he said, you better strengthen, you better, that means to nurture, to support. Listen to this, ah, this is so good, Romans 11. It's worth meditating on, brothers and sisters. It says this, Paul says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Listen, so what does he mean? Verse 12, he says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Both yours and mine. I say this because I love you. 
If you're not actively involved in a healthy, hospitable community, you have fallen asleep and forgotten that you are put here on this earth to help other people grow in Christ. And there is nothing more important than that. No, not feeding the homeless. No, not doing anything else. Help people follow Jesus that follows them into eternity. There is things worse than being hungry and poor. It is to step into eternity and know not Christ. That's our work. And that is ultimate. And that is primary. Brothers and sisters, I thought about this, Micah. You see, Micah and Megan have Esther in the house. Right? And Esther cannot afford for Micah and Megan to be selfish. Because if they are, what happens to Esther? She perishes. So it is in the church. We cannot afford for each other to be selfish. Building our own dreams and making our own plans. We must fan each other's faith into a full flame. My dad's got a big stove out in his backyard. And that's what he heats his house with and his water. But if it gets really cold like it's been and you let that fire almost go out, you've got to pull the coals and you've got to pull them up towards the front of the stove. And then you've got to put some wood on there. And when you close the door and flip on the switch, the fan starts blowing. What does that fan do? It fans into flames of those embers into full flame so it can do what it is meant to do. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave you not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Wake up and strengthen each other's faith. And listen, you need to remember. Look at verse 3. Remember. Remember what? You've got to sort of take all this whole sentence together. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So in other words, remember what you have received and heard. Keep what you have received and heard. And repent for not remembering and not keeping what you have received and heard. We've got to remember. Now I'm not going to caveat everything I say this morning. Take this into context here of the church that is asleep that needs to wake up. Because they have completely been secularized. Remember, we don't owe the world anything. We don't owe the world anything. They had forgotten what the scripture says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. We don't owe the world anything. Listen, some of us need to listen. We're better Americans than we are Christians. We pledge allegiance to Christ. Our allegiance to anything else looks like disallegiance. Our love for anybody else should look like hate in comparison to how much we love Christ. We should not be more patriotic Americans than we are devoted Christians. I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian that lives in America. If you put me somewhere else, I'm still a Christian living there. We are Christians first. And He gets our full devotion. He gets our full honor. He gets our love. He gets the best and the first. Remember, transformation begins with a renewed mindset on God's Word. Begins there. Never leaves that. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your minds that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. A lot we could say, but remember this. The greatest gift we ever receive is the gift of God Himself. And you received that when you were converted through the Spirit of God that indwells your very soul. You see, this is the point today. The Spirit of God goes to work within our actual life. The Holy Spirit always works from the inside out. It's the way He works. That's, what, that's the indictment, you see. The indictment is, where is the Spirit working within you? Not worried about all these externals. Remember what Jesus said? You're worried about the outside of the cup. What's on the inside of the cup is what matters. This is what the Spirit does. He works on the inside. Sometimes He works really, really slow. In my life and yours and other people that we wish would just stop it. How do we know it's working? How are you responding to the truth? Does it move you toward obedience or indifference? Here's a good question. Is this building should be reflecting of a God? Because if it is, we're doing a pitiful job. Maybe we need to go in debt for a couple million dollars. Let's just really do it, right? Is that biblical? Is that the focus? There's no temple that reflects God today. Why not? Because you reflect God. We are the temple of God. He indwells us. We take Him wherever we go. And when we gather Him together, He is here. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, (laughs) I love that, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We reflect Him by the Spirit of God that is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And just remember, It is the Lord Himself that holds the Spirit. Verse 1. The Spirit is the only one who can breathe life into our lives and our worship. And He is the only one that can rescue a dying church. The church doesn't need a superstar preacher. A church must fall on His face and ask to be filled with the Spirit of the living God. And if they don't, they will perish. The Word of God tells us we need to pray in the Spirit. We need to preach in the Spirit. We need to worship in the Spirit. We've got to live in the Spirit. And we've got to walk in the Spirit. Matter of fact, that's what he says next. That we need to remember it. And then we need to keep it. Keep what? Keep what we've received and heard. How do we do that? Well, Galatians 5 calls it walking in the Spirit. But I say walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words... One of the ways you know you're spirit-filled is you got this, this tension, this little war going on in the inside of you because there's things we want to do 
And the Spirit don't go along with it. And so He rubs against it. pushes against it. They're opposed to each other. That's what verse 17 says. He moves us. The Spirit of God always moves us in a direction. And that direction is repentance. So I thought about this. I thought about the prodigal son. You remember Luke 15? The son tells his father, I wish you were dead. Give me what's going to belong to me after you're dead. And he went out and spent his money on what we used used the songs used to say, wine, women, and song. Ended up in a pig pen. Remember what it said? He was sitting there, and it said he came to his senses. What What was going on there? He was remembering. My father takes care of his servants. How much more did he take care of me? It's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm just going to tell my daddy. He said, Daddy, I don't deserve to be a servant. I've sinned against you and against God. Just make me a servant. Here's what his dad said when he got up and went home. Verse 22. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us celebrate. Verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate repentance brings a celebration because now we inherit the promises and there's a promise and listen there's a promise both to the repentant and the unrepentant to the unrepentant in verse 3 we see he warns them if you will not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know At the hour, I will come against you. This visitation will be swift, unexpected, and final. The promise is not simply what's going to happen at the second coming. The promise is imminent judgment to the unrepentant. But to the remnant, to the repentant. Look at verse 4. I want you to see this remnant here. Talked about this a little bit last week. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There's a few. That's called remnant theology. That's the doctrine of the remnant. We see this from the very beginning of Scripture. All through Scripture. You see it in the flood. You see it at Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember Elijah in the days of Jezebel and Ahab. We talked about them last week. He was sitting around and whining, saying, Lord, I'm the only one around here that's following. And you ever felt like that in your jobs? I'm the only one. And the Lord leaned over and said, I got 7,000 that I've kept for myself that have not bowed the knee. So get up and do what I told you to do. <laughs> it's good. There's the remnant. This is the promise. And to those remnants, he gives this. Listen to Jesus. Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. <laughs> That's quite a promise. This promise is to a few people. The remnant is called to rouse themselves. Remember in, in Luke, there's a wedding, and you got to trim your lamps, and you got to wait for Him. you got to be ready. Don't go to sleep. And to the remnant, He gives... The promise, look at the promises. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Three promises there, do you see them? One is you'll be dressed in white. 
That means this. This is a promise for all of us. Jesus is going to get you ready for glory. When we, get, when we step into heaven, we will be clothed for it. This points to our righteousness. It does not come from our own merit, but it comes from that. Remember that story of the prodigal son? The robe belongs to the father. This white symbol of justification. Our righteousness before God is a symbol of our purity. Listen, it is a symbol of honor. For they are worthy not because they have done some ultimate good deed, but because they have surrendered to the Lord and He has covered them with His righteousness. He has put authority on their finger and sonship on their feet. And because they are sons, look at the second promise, they will never be blotted out of the book. The point is not that some people get blotted out of the book. That's just a bad hermeneutic, by the way. A bad interpretation of Scripture. The point is the promise for the few, the remnant, that your name is in a book. You see, in that day, whether it's the Jewish people or other people, they had citizenship books. And if you died, they'd blot your name out of the book. Or if you're a criminal, they'd blot your name out of the book. But you're a citizen, you're a child, you're in there and you're not going to be erased. And I will not be ashamed to acknowledge you before my Father. It's a good question, isn't it? Am I part of the unashamed minority? Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. It goes on to say, the righteous live by faith. And this faith, brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is the so what? This faith that we live by is not a safe faith. It is not an inoffensive faith. It is a radical faith. The radical faith is the faith. It's not necessarily a culturally relevant faith. Never has been. It wasn't at that time. And it's not today. But Jesus was trying to warn the Pharisees, there is a religious life that can be a dead life. You see, a safe faith demands nothing, costs nothing, produces nothing, but a hard heart and a fruitless life. In reality, it's not very safe at all. Radical faith is an authentic faith. It's not about being having a perfect faith. Matter of fact, it's, it's better, you see, to have be honest about where you are than to put on the makeup and try to act like something you're not. This is why we see people sometimes with little knowledge about God that has a greater desire for God than people with a lot of knowledge of God that don't use any of it. And so, I was meditating on this this week. and Radical faith and authentic faith and trying to practice the message before I dare preach it to you. Pleading with the Lord to be filled with His Spirit and be sensitive and not be so planned and all the time. And Lord, 
And I began to remember. And I come today to ask for your forgiveness because I've never told y'all our story that led to the birth of this church. And uh, I'm sorry for that. So next week, I'm going to tell you the story of our adoption of our children. It's a two-year story. It took nearly everything we had physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But it led not only to growing our family, it led to where we are today. I had to remember that. That's important in your life and mine. That you remember what the Lord has done in your life. And so next week, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the service and we're going to remember that together. You see, your cost is not going to be the same as mine. But to follow Christ is a cost. Are you willing to pay it? Remind you what Paul said to Timothy. Let us, brothers and sisters, gather together, large group and small group, to fan into flame the gift of God in each other's life. And let us remember that the Christian life doesn't look weak, hateful, or out of control. Because when the Spirit works, He gives us power, He gives us love, and He gives us self-control. Is this the kind of faith you want to live out? And if you're a child of God, you know it is. An authentic, spirit-filled, costly, sacrificial faith. It is essential this morning. As I, like yesterday, it was just one of those days, you got, I got tough, tough news with people we care about, and if you love people, you know you carry their pain with you. It's essential to understand it's the Spirit who gives life. Oh, it was so important for us to gather today and sing the songs. There is someone who has conquered death. Whether it's COVID or pneumonia or leukemia or cancer, it is the Spirit who gives life and it is the Lord who promises us to keep us until we are safely home. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the message. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for a father who loves us enough to correct us, but will never break us, who desires to restore us, so that He might use us. So that we might enjoy Him. And so God, we just want to be filled by Your Spirit, Lord. We are already indwelled and safe and secure and Yours. But Lord, there's things that we need to do and there's things that, that we're afraid of. Some of us are just afraid of life. So Lord, fill us with your Spirit in our minds, Lord. 
in our hands. That our desires might be to love your word and to obey it. And to love other people the way you have loved us. To show mercy as we've been shown mercy. But to proclaim the gospel faithfully. And so God be worshipped now. In Jesus name. Amen.